Welcome back to Money for Nothing, a podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always, I'm with Sam Backer. And today, we're talking about the American clave. And we'll be talking to a really cool guest that we're very excited to have on. Uh, Sam, tell us who we'll be talking to. Yeah, so this is based on an article by an ethnomusicologist named Wayne Marshall, who is a assistant professor at Berklee School of Music. And Wayne was one of the, I mean, I first came across Wayne's work when he was writing uh, in, a scho- in, a, in a way that was both scholarly and accessible, which, like, believe you me, is a, a mix that is rare to find about reggaeton. And, re- and his scholarship in reggaeton, and he, uh, I think, edited, like, the book about, scholarly book about reggaeton. And my sense, and yeah, it was published in 2009, um, which was kind of when the original wave of reggaeton had kind of crested. Turned out he was way ahead of the curve because like, go anywhere today and you'll hear reggaeton. So he's a man with a, a, a finger on the pulse of the clave. Um, yeah, and, Wayne and is so- great. I suggest following him on Twitter at Wayne and Wax. I've been a long time fan of his. I suggest reading everything he writes, including his tweets. And he wrote this article uh, recently about what he coined as the American clave. But before we dive too far into it, Sam, why don't you give us like a little bit of a background about what clave is? Because I got a feeling that a lot of our listeners, you know, and even including myself, don't have a real clear idea of what clave is. Okay, so I am uh, extremely by no means an expert. I mean, like that's always true, but this is especially true. But basically, um, clave is a integral part of an Afro-diasporic musical tradition um, that really is prevalent in the music of Cuba, the music of the Caribbean, and more broadly has been, and from that very strict definition has kind of been used to more broadly talk about rhythmic structures in African diaspora music in the New World. And so basically my understanding is that um, if you think about Western music, there's sort of like bars of music like 16 bars 32 bars and they're in a time signature that's four four like one two three four one two three four it's in three four one two three one two three or it's in three eight one two three one two three one two three right and in various west african musical traditions which i know is a massive oversimplification but uh, again i by no means an expert in this in various west african musical traditions um instead of having a kind of a, a blank rhythmic meter in which you put things, you have an underlying rhythm, a basic bedrock rhythm that a piece or set of pieces or traditions is built around. It's actually kind of similar to my understanding of a, like Raga and Tala in Indian Hindustani classical music. So it's a similar, somewhat similar idea. And so basically, um, as pe- enslaved people are moved throughout the new world, they bring these rhythmic traditions with them. And in the early 20th century, when the popular music revolution hits, um, a lot of folk traditions that kept these various rhythmic ideas, approaches to rhythmic ideas really alive. It's not, there are some spaces, especially in Cuba and Oriente, that have like direct ties, or, or Haiti, direct ties to West African traditions. But in a lot of places, it's, I would almost say it's more like approaches to traditions or approaches to thinking about rhythms. So you get rhythms that play organizing roles in music and that the music is built around. So you can get like the reggaeton beat, which is like, right? All reggaeton. Um, you can have like uh, more of like a dance hall beat, like which it, 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 there are many different ones, but like the mm, 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 
mm, mm, beat. And so basically what Wayne did, which is wild, was he found that there is one of these rhythms in American music that starts at the turn of the 20th century, really late 19th century, with the rise of ragtime, and continues through like the branchings and forkings and intertwinings of both various black musical traditions or primarily black musical traditions and various what understood to be white musical traditions, perhaps most importantly country, which has complicated cross-racial roots, but is uh, whitened in like very intense ways. And so basically by tracing this one rhythm, you can basically get a recapitulation like of the entirety of 20th century musical culture, which is just, beyond wild so i was trying to think of a way for people who are maybe like less musically inclined or knowledgeable about the sort of inner workings of how music is structured and trying to think of a way to help them better understand this and i got to thinking about language and i was kind of thinking about the way in which say like a like slang words travel through different communities and over and over time and so i was thinking like say the word like dude you know there's the original definition of dude somehow it got picked up by you know surfer culture skater culture you know and now 2020 you know everybody's saying dude from you know a 12 year old to like your mother and but nobody's ever really stopped and like thought about wait why why are we all saying dude or maybe notice that how it's sort of expanded and like become like this thing that which everybody says now and really like trace those origins or even really notice that it's become so widespread and ubiquitous. So I was kind of thinking like that is kind of a, maybe a sort of rough example of this clave, this American clave uh, as, as Wayne coins it in which it's so prevalent for now over a hundred years in American music. And it's gone through so many different jo- genres and it's traveled over time and it's still prevalent. And there's a great mini mix that we'll link to in the show description that Wayne put together that uh, that traces it. But maybe nobody's ever really coined it or really noticed it or like written a kind of a history about it. But I was just trying to think of a way for people who uh, maybe don't really fully still understand the definition of clave and kind of get, trying to give an example of something else to kind of give them an idea of like what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah, totally. Maybe another example I, I think of was like a, about a year ago, two years ago, I read the New Testament for the first time because I was like, this is an important book. I should read the New Testament. <laughs> okay. And the number of sayings that I thought came from like movies, but that were actually from the New Testament blew my yeah. mind. And it's similar, right? Like these little bits and pieces of how people say things or how people do things that get passed on. And uh, yeah, I think dude is a really good example. Um, I think that's also a good example as well. There's definitely various sayings that, you know, originate from the New Testament and we, nobody stops to think about where they come from or, or... Oh, ye of little faith. Jesus said that. I had no idea. Well, you read the New Testament. So now you do. And now everybody listening to this show does. Anyway, so so Sam, I'm, I'm interested though, because this definitely leans a little heavy... Not that that's a problem, but it leans a little heavy on the music side of things, you know, and we're, we're a podcast about music and capitalism. So here's like the big question before we hear our interview with Wayne and we really dive into this really interesting and uh, kind of exciting discovery that we feel like should uh, 
There should be more. Everyone should know about. This is crazy. Like, yeah, yeah that we wanted that we wanted to shine a little light on and 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 uh, maybe bump bump it up a little bit. But like, you know, maybe we, maybe it's a little theoretical. But like, let, let's talk about sort of like the the money aspect, the economic aspect, the the structures of society aspect. Like, how does that really play a role in this like American clave uh, idea? So so maybe to tee you up here, one of the interesting aspects about the American clave in regards to this question is that it kind of becomes prevalent at the very beginning of what I'm going to very loosely term to be popular music or pop music in America. Would that, would that be accurate or the beginning of the music industry? Maybe. Yo. So, so basically I was really interested in this story for, for two reasons, right? For one, because it is very rare that you read something that changes the way you hear the entire history of American music by linking everything from like 50 Cent to uh, George Harrison playing country and Western. Like, that's wild. That's wild. It's a great time. It's a great time. And you just go like, oh, it's there. Oh, it's there. Jump by Van Halen. It's wild. So that <laughs> nerding out. But from like a, like a history of capitalism, music and capitalism angle, I'm really interested in this because I think... I think it's really important because it helps us get at a absolutely critical, but in some ways really intangible moment in American musical history, right? And whether it's the beginning of pop music is sort of difficult to say. I think the second thing you said, this is the beginning of the music industry, is much more right on. So without getting like too far into the weeds, music in the 19th century, there's no way to reproduce it, right? So the primary carrier of a piece of music is sheet music. And basically, for most of the 19th century, sheet music was produced by these kind of big, lumbering, conservative firms that kind of were like, we'll make some classical music, occasionally we'll do a pop song, we'll like produce something for everyone, and just kind of slowly grind out like a decent living and some profits. And in the late 19th century, as a result of a bunch of different things, so like this, we're talking about 1880s, 1890s, a uh, result of, you know, things being more interconnected, right? A lot of railroads get built, new printing presses, bigger cities, and also just kind of generational turnover, right? Like there's a new generation of entrepreneurs in the music industry and they realize they can do something really different, right? That instead of producing, printing a ton of different pieces of sheet music, they can try to really focus on a couple of pieces and they can use publicity and they can use advertising to push those pieces out. And all of a sudden you get something that looks a lot like the pop music industry, right? Like they're gonna release 50 songs, three of them are gonna sell a million copies, that's gonna produce the rest. And they're, as soon as a song hits, they're gonna try to replace it with the next song. Instead of assuming that you can kind of, you know, produce a new edition of Mozart every two years, it's like, no, what's the next thing? And that starts to reshape, really, it makes what a pop song is. It makes pop songs, it makes pop music, and it's the foundation of the music industry. And the thing is, this rhythm comes out of that really early moment. Um, and specifically, it comes out of ragtime, right? which is really the first black popular musical style 
to hit the American mainstream. There have been earlier musical styles um, coming out of the minstrel shows, right, that were purported to be black, and there were some vogue for things that were quasi-black. So you've got minstrel, you've got uh, some some interest in spirituals, you've got minstrels pretending to do spirituals, but this really comes out of post-emancipation Mississippi River, where you get a massive process of urbanization um, that brings a whole bunch of different communities that had previously been separate and brings them together and brings them around this new technology, which is, believe it or not, the piano, because there's all of a sudden mass-produced pianos that are accessible, right? They Piano companies start making really cheap pianos, cheap enough for everyone to get them, stand-up pianos. Yeah, they're not grand pianos. Oh, no, no, these are like... And they're still everywhere. That's what's hilarious. That yeah. America still yeah, the ha- one in the the one in the corner of your bar that nobody can use or play, but it's like on display. That, 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 yeah, that's and, what they're and it has like ivory keys because like fuck those elephants. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so so, and really, ragtime blows up in this moment, right? That it's this hot sound. It comes from St. Louis. It comes from specifically like the cross cultural mixture between formerly enslaved people from the country who now have the ability to move black middle class who are interested in like classical composition interested in musical uplift new forms of mass entertainment like new entertainment districts the idea that you can like go out and have fun for your money whenever you want to a lot of that's built around sex work so you get these this is all happening in like bordellos and red light districts these like cross-racial brothels the whole bunch of cross class, a whole bunch of different people coming together in these super modern environments. Um, and ragtime kind of emerges, not just does it emerge out of that, it's then made national by the first real mass culture industry this country had ever seen. And so I think that the reason that this rhythm ends up behaving the way it seems to behave is because it's sort of like, it, it's sort of like the uh, like the it's almost like the Big Bang of American popular music ragtime. It's right, and, and by and by following following this 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 rhythm, or American clave as Wayne calls it, you're kind of tracing the history as well of the American music industry and the development of the American music industry. You know, in a way, kind of like following this path, like is also a, the, the story of you know how we got to where we are today when it comes to, you know, music in America, but in more broad terms. Yeah, totally. And so that's why I think it can mean so many different things. And I mean, the way that it was, then the way that it was even popularized, and you know, Wayne goes into this a little bit more, and you know, so we'll we'll save save a lot of this for the interview that you'll that you're about to hear. But as way, but you know, even the way that it gets popularized is through these sort of mechanisms of an industry like developing and, and 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 mass production and distribution and and uh you know uh marketing and all these things that you know you've kind of mentioned you know in your in what you were saying but like it, you know it's like that's really kind of how this how this rhythm really uh travels you know, is through these mechanisms and through the development of this American music and music industry. So it's really kind of on the back of that as well. And so that, that, that it, like, like I said, it, it's following its path is like seeing how these things sort of like work as well. Yeah. It's also interesting because I think it's really pertinent for thinking about music as a commodity, which we do a lot here, right? 
And one of the cool things for me in tracing for-profit music over like the long term, right? Like not for-profit music since the 50s, but for-profit music since <laughs> for-profit music since the 1850s. Um what you get is this like process of commodification and decommodification that really builds builds the complexity and like is is at the root of a lot of the complexity of American musical traditions, I think, which is that like I don't know if this is true anywhere. Like, maybe, like, Andalusian folk music is really, like, 3,000 years old and from the people. But in America, capitalism was always here first, right? And so for American musical traditions, a lot of things that people think are folk songs were actually written by someone for profit, sat down at his desk and was like, I'm going to write a hit song to be distributed by an industry. I'm going to pitch it to a publisher who's going to like advertise it in the papers. And then that gets picked up and put into people's memories and wrapped with like the meaning like this is the song I sang when I met my wife and then sung to the kids and then the kids sing it to the grandkids. And all of a sudden you get like in the Grand Old Opry in the 20s, people performing songs that have been like simplified and changed and altered by this process of handing them over but things that were pop songs 50 years earlier and yeah or you know or even if they did kind of cut even if they did come from some sort of folk tradition of the people were then you know put through the capitalist meat grinder and like spit out in a way that was uh, to sell it to you in a way that you know would make it marketable and, and sell and sellable and then back and forth and back and forth and one of the things i think that wayne does a really cool way is he traces a bunch of these back and forths where like it's like a it's like the hottest new thing in jazz and then it kind of enters people's lives and then it comes back out in hip-hop <laughs> as like a party chant in hip-hop and it's like how did it get from a to b and it's because like in some ways it was popular culture it's just like in people's lived realities kind of floating around in all kinds of cool ways and, and i do think that like that's it's a complicated problem to think about like how does music as a commodity connect with music as a lived reality and i think that this rhythm really lets us get at some of those questions uh, especially because like this rhythm emerges so early that it can kind of be at the root of a lot or present at the root of a lot of the developments of 20th century popular music it's also interesting that wayne coined it the american clave because if we're talking about this being american and where you and I are now also talking about how it's inextricable from, you know, the mechanisms of like a, a developing industry in a capitalist society, that it is kind of interesting that it does kind of have, you know, these two elements to it that, it you know, it can't be, you know, we talk about ideas of being like genuinely American as if this is like something that is like, you know, only really found it here or like was like rooted here or like started here you know you can't you have to also then consider that there was this whole marketing capitalist machine behind it you know and then not to mention that you know uh that you know it was comes out of black music traditions here and like of course we all know the history of you know black americans here as well so it's it's, it's complicated you know it's complicated even calling it you know calling it american you know the american clave well i mean unless you get it and and this is kind of where I think I am, which which is that, like that very process of commodification and decommodification, that like that 
constant changing for-profit thing is is what makes something American. It's No, exactly. And that's why I said what's so interesting about it is that, you know, we can't necessarily or like these things that have become common to us, you know, whether it's like a song or like I said, like slang or something and that we assume is just like part of like, you know, the fabric of like American tradition or like my family tradition or whatever, you know, there's always that element of that you're, you're that you're talking about, and that's actually what makes it American. Yeah. So I mean, with that comes just the background. Let's go. Uh, let's go to Wayne. So yeah, now you'll be hearing our interview with ethnomusicologist Wayne Marshall talking about his article on the American clave. Let's just, I mean, because again, I'm like, I, I flipped out when I read this because it's like this amazing master key that all of a sudden opens up all these doors across the history of American music. And for a single piece of writing to make that many connections was just like f- fabulous and exciting for me. So maybe to start with, tell us about this rhythm, the, the American clave that you are writing about. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, And yeah, I do. I mean, clave in some ways does mean key. Uh, And that was one reason I was drawn to it, because I think it does end up being a a really useful key for thinking through, um, you know, and thinking across all these genres and all all of this history. Um, I do think, you know, there was there's something a little bit um, that I'm a little ambivalent about still about using the term clave. And I tried to address that, too. And we we can dig into that all we like. But um, you know, one of the reasons I call it the clave, uh, American clave, is because it it does resemble, uh, as I also explain in, uh, in on the write up in my website, um, it resembles a bunch of other patterns that we would call clave or that are called clave, uh, especially the Cuban claves. Um, there's this other idea that there's a Brazilian clave, although the Brazilianists wouldn't really call it that, and I think some some uh, uh, Americanists in the narrower sense, you know, some some U.S folks might also kind of quibble with the fact that I'm calling it a clave. It might seem like a kind of almost uh, Cuban imperialism, uh, which would be okay at this point, but also uh, know that it just might mis- be misleading, right? Because it doesn't function exactly the same as a clave, um, as far as being a sort of timeline around which everything else is fit. Um, but it very, you know, very much resembles those other Afro-diasporic rhythms, and I did want to call attention to that kinship. Um, at at the same time, on the other hand, I want to call attention to the fact that it is different, and it is maybe distinctively, you know, U.S. Uh, as a figure, and therefore kind of offers us a, a pretty tantalizing way of threading through all this musical history in a way that gets a little bit muddier if you're trying to track more commonplace, you know, rhythm, rhythmic figures like uh, the Cuban clave, the son clave, or like uh, the tresillo or, you know, the, the, the dance hall beat. Um, habanero, dembo, you know, these all, you know, these are, these are also widely distributed rhythms. Um, but at a certain level, so widely distributed, it can be hard to uh, to sort of trace lineages. Whereas, you know, once I kind of 
cottoned on to this particular rhythm, um, I started to get really interested about what kind of lineage it seemed to draw because um, far as I could tell, it was new in some ways um, as of the ragtime era. And uh, because I do listen really widely across uh, the musics of the Americas, you know, North America, South America, Central, the Caribbean, I also kind of knew uh, at a kind of glance, at a kind of gut check level, that this was a rhythm that doesn't occur too frequently uh, outside of the United States. So it did seem like a kind of interesting thing and thread to follow. Um, you know, that said, you know, I, I've been following that thread for many years now, basically, and, and increasingly just trying to get a sense of whether I, whether there was a story here or not. Um, I can tell you a little bit about how I discovered it in the first place, you know, or how it became kind of apparent to me. And uh, interestingly, that enough, was our, that was our next question was like, how did you, how did you discover this? How did you hear it and go, wait a minute, <laughs> this sounds like John from Van Halen. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That one took me longer to connect. Um, but uh, yeah. So I first noticed it interestingly enough when I was um, getting into ragtime, um, partly because I was teaching a new class at Berkeley College of Music, well, a new class for me called the Music of the Afri African Diaspora in the United States. Of course, that's a vast subject and you want to do justice to it. And um, I, I really try to, including, you know, talking a fair amount about ragtime, which I think is a, a really important and, and crucial and consequential musical genre in, in that history. Um, and so I, you know, had been doing a, a unit on ragtime in my classes there at Berkeley. And at the same time, uh, we got a little piano here in the house and my daughters were starting to take piano lessons. And uh, I um, started to take a lesson or two with their teacher as well, um, just just for kicks and also uh, with the hope that it might, you know, help me to unlock some, some things. And uh, it turns out my desire to try to play Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag is exactly what brought this to my attention in the first place. Um, so I never got very far. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to just talk and talk. I know like with the th three guys talking should have a little bit more back and forth, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so Maple Leaf Rag, right? Scott Joplin, um, huge hit of uh, 1899, I think, if, I, if I'm getting the dates right. Um, sheet music hit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the bigger hits of that, that moment in ragtime history. <laughs> more or less yeah more or less um so yeah no most people you know know what, what most people know of ragtime is joplin at this point and in my classes i go a lot deeper into sort of what he was you know what was inspiring him where he was getting some of this stuff from um but it's also true that that he put a very strong imprint on the genre um but a lot of people think of it as you know piano music, kind of chamber music almost. And, and that was partly Joplin's doing. He did want to market it that way and, and present it that way to the kind of people that were buying sheet music to play in their parlors. Um, though, of course, it's a, it's a music that has its roots, um, you know, in all kinds of other uh, spaces and contexts and styles too, um, that it was mostly played really by string bands. You know, most people probably heard ragtime either by string bands or by brass bands um, in in jukes and in 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 bars and saloons and and so forth. Um, 
And so, uh, so Joplin, Joplin's ragtime uh, has a lot in common with all that other stuff, especially, you know, the rhythms. And, and a lot of people noted at the time that part of what made ragtime ragtime was its kind of ragged approach to rhythm, its emphasis on, you know, syncopation, as they called it. And um, Maple Leaf Rag has a few different examples of that, um, including examples that are closer to what Cubans would call the tresillo, where, you know, the rhythm starts on the downbeat and it's more like dun dun gang gang right? Dun 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 dun. So it's a it's a downbeat oriented, you know, grouping of threes and twos. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. But um, yeah, so so a lot of ragtime actually does have those kinds of, you know, syncopations or polyrhythms in them, um, ones that are, in fact, you know, shared across, um, you know, the Caribbean and, and, and parts of Latin America and so forth. Um, but there's the opening strain uh, and ragtime a lot of joplin stuff is in strain form you know so you'll have these alternating sort of sections the opening strain has this other ragtime rhythm in it where instead of starting on the downbeat and and rolling those threes against that underlying kind of duple pulse that four four pulse or two pulse um he hesitates right he waits an eighth note and then we start rolling those threes against that underlying pulse so it's i hear it as a little bit hipper in a way it's a little bit you know tricky um and and um i think part of that trickiness maybe is why it was almost obscured to me for a while until i tried to play it on piano so as i'm trying to play it on piano i never even got past that opening just because i got so into kind of banging out that rhythm so if you recall it kind of begins and I, i'm gonna get this all wrong with my singing but it's you know boom you know and then does this other little flurry thing but just i just was trying to learn that first part and you know i i'm a i'm a loop oriented guy i'm a i'm a sort of beat guy and i just sat there looping that first section and i just started nailing those chords and just loving that rhythm and thinking you know what you know what's going on here and i played it from for the my teacher at the time, who was a recent NEC, you know, jazz pianist graduate, you know, really, um, really big ears and, and a great sense of, uh, of style. Um, and I played it for him like that. And he's like, man, you're making it sound like a merengue or something. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, I don't really hear it that way. But yeah, anyway, you're hearing, you're hearing that, you know, there's some, there's something interesting there. And um, anyway, so having done that, I got it into my ears and, and I started to notice it in other places. Um, and in fact, the, the next thing that kind of came into my head, because I was also teaching this as part of my ragtime course, is the composition that at the moment, I, I think arguably is the one that actually introduced this rhythm, which is it's kind of an amazing claim. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a student of music, you know, a really deep student of music, you know, in, in some ways there's there's like nothing new under the sun. You know, everything's been done. Um, and yet, you know, uh, some things, you know, especially in traditional contexts are are, are not done. Um, and and so, you know, that, that was the interesting thing about this rhythm and what led me to to think about it as a distinctively U.S. Uh, sort of thing is that it did seem to depart from from orthodoxy, from even from what we might call a kind of Afro-diasporic orthodoxy in terms of starting on the downbeat 
with those threes. And this is also true in a lot of traditional and even in popular African music, that, that the tendency is really to start those kind of threes against twos things on the downbeat. Um, but, uh, you know, this one just shifted over a little bit. And uh, the guy who wrote that song, which was a big hit in 1896, uh, is, uh, was named Ernest Hogan. And um, he's he's also one of the fathers of ragtime. Uh, he was a very sort of accomplished um, singer and actor uh, in the black vaudeville circuit. Um, and uh, he uh, also scored some some big hits uh, on sheet music in the mid 1890s and, and really helped to popularize uh, ragtime um, uh, in the sheet music world uh, as Tin Pan Alley is just kicking up. Now, at the same time, he also helped to, to, to popularize um, a, a sub-style of ragtime that uh, is a, is a kind of um, a regrettable but, in, you know, uh, uh, an important part of its history, um, which was known as the Coon Song. You which know, is a huge, the... a huge, massive wave of these get released around right uh, the turn of the 20th century, like 18, what, 96 to 1902 or 1903 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, immediately in the wake of, of Hogan's success with this song, which is called All Coons Look Alike to Me, um, but then actually not not stopping any time as soon as 1902 or 3. I mean, you know, these songs reach up even into the teens, believe it or not. And, you know, I mean, we all know that, that the, the caricatures of, of minstrelsy kind of continue uh, to, to haunt American popular music and culture in all kinds of ways, even still today. Um, but it's, it is kind of even amazing to think that as, as late as, you know, uh, the teens, you still had white performers, you know, uh, essentially um, putting on uh, at least an audible blackface, if not an actual, you know, blackface in their performances. The jazz singer. Yeah, the jazz singer is is a fine example of that. Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, you know, for better and for worse, uh, Ernest Hogan has a huge hit in 1896 with All Coons Look Alike to Me. And the main rhythm in the chorus, um, especially articulated on the... Um, the banjo, which was one of the main instruments to, to uh, sort of accompany it, is this rhythm. And interestingly enough, you know, when you read into Hogan and the story of this song, um, he, he really makes some strong claims about it. He says a new rhythm was given to the people and um, he sort of stakes claim to this. I mean, he also claims to have heard the song performed in a saloon in Chicago and whether he heard that rhythm as part of it, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I do think it's, it's as possible that this was a, a rhythmic figure in circulation among ragtime era musicians uh, and that Hogan didn't himself just invent it. But, you know, he did, uh, you know, to his credit, you know, put it on the page. Um, and in his case, very lucratively so. And, and, uh, and you know, that's, again, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but he had learned by that point, um, having scored a hit the previous year called uh, Pama La, La Pama La, which is a kind of how it's a it's a dance tune where he's he's kind of telling you how to do the dance. It's one of the earliest examples on paper of this as well. You know, put your hand on your hip and now dip. You dip. No, he doesn't do that. But he um, <laughs> uh, that song actually has a very <laughs> that would have been great. But it has a very pronounced like um, uh, habanero rhythm in it or what we'd call dembo today you know and um you know some ragtime songs were also doing that and at that point you know arguably it's inextricable from 
actual influence from Cuba, um, either directly or through New Orleans. And, and so, you know, um, who knows where he was getting that, um, you know, whether that was part of U.S. ragtime practice or he thought of it as a kind of more exotic rhythm representing the islands or this, you know, um, you know, and, and it's true that along those lines, you know, W.C. Handy was was putting tango sections into his early blues compositions in, in the early teens, you know, so there was a kind of vogue for Latin dances and rhythms at that time, too. And, and that's where it gets tricky to kind of say this was a U.S. thing versus a more broad Afro-diasporic thing or actually the example of influence from Cuba. Um, but uh, so that Palma La song was not that lucrative for him because I think he sold it for a flat fee of like $25. And then the publisher made a mint off of it. So the following year, he negotiated with a different publisher, M. Whitmark & Sons, which was one of the new Tin Pan Alley firms and, and became one of the most successful. And um, on a royalty basis, uh, and he ended up earning something like $100,000 uh, on that tune in the next few years, which is a lot of money now and certainly a lot of money in the 1890s. So, um, I mean, uh, that's one of the things I'm, I'm really fascinated about this whole, um, about when this rhythm happens, because, I mean, I kind of think about ragtime as almost like the event horizon of American the American music industry, you know, that it's the, in some ways it's like some waltz songs aside, like it's the a new Afro-diasporic form that blows up out of kind of the new urban spaces, um, out of like the, you know, the kind of rivering network out of St. Louis, out of Chicago, um, post-reconstruction, and also that it, but that it, it fully takes place kind of within a music industry that this is not I mean while it's drawing on folk traditions this is a, a you know it's like you said like it's a new sound unto the people <laughs> it's a it's a yeah. new urban style that only happens only can take place within uh, a music industry that's already able to sell a million copies of after the ball that's already able to distribute a hit at a national level. Right, which is a relatively new thing at the time, you know, and, and After the Ball is a great example. Um, but that would then shortly be followed by a bunch of ragtime bestsellers that that equaled or sur surpassed it. But you're right, so that machinery is just coming into, uh, into being at that time, and so it's sort of poised and primed. But on top of that, I think we actually need to give credit to, to ragtime and to um, you know, the black composers uh, that were pushing it because that, did, you know, those those did end up being really hot sellers. They did much better than the, those sentimental ballads and and other things. And uh, I think you're right. You know, that ragtime is is a really key, you know, genre for even for thinking about popular music, especially in the era of the music industry as we know it. Um, and in fact, Elijah Wald, in his great book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, um, begins by saying, well, it's chapter two or something, but he begins by saying, ragtime was the first pop genre in the sense that we have understood pop genres ever since, um, that it really does seem to draw a line. And, and part of that being that, that before then, you know, there were, you know, different styles of, of presentation and, and popular dances and so forth. But as Wald says, not what we would now call genres. Um, so there is something kind of inaugural about ragtime. And again, for better and for worse, it's also inaugurated 
with the coon song it's it's still kind of coming out of minstrelsy which was the most popular entertainment of the 19th century um and yet it also represents a new opening for black artists and composers um and and musicians and and one where they um enjoy a little more pride of place one where they have a bit of an advantage even in the marketplace and as far as the the degrading stereotypes you know to some extent that's just the coin of the realm and 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 they sort of have to make certain compromises even to access, you know, that machinery. But, you know, those artists, you know, Ernest Hogan and, and, and all of his his cohort, um, you know, including the guys at the Marshall Hotel in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, Burt Williams, James Reese Europe, uh, 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 the, the Johnson brothers, um, you know, they they all were trying to work within those constraints, but ultimately uh, were quite successful in, in terms of breaking a lot of barriers and ultimately even breaking through those degrading stereotypes and finding ways to, to subvert them and, and create new new opportunities for, for black art in this country. Well, so I guess like the next, I think the next thing that we kind of wanted to explore was how it like tied to black country band traditions and like string bang music and like how that kind of, and you know, cause like you kind of in your article veer a path into what I guess is popular known, popularly known now as like country music. And I think that that's like a really interesting narrative. And I think that it kind of also plays into sort of a lot of misconceptions about uh country music or like the use of the banjo or like things like that uh i, rec- I recall like a-, a tweet a long time ago from the fader covering some like sort of a like post-classical artist who was like using a banjo or something and they're like and the person was a you know the, the artist was a person of a color that I- but like the tweet had said something about like something to the effect of you know, African Americans can like play the banjo too, and I was like, well, that's actually like they they've been doing it <laughs> for like a long, long time, you know. And so I, I was thinking about that when I was reading your article. So maybe if you can like kind of trace us through how it kind of went into like sort of string music and country music and like kind of that. Path. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, in lots of ways, I'm I'm glad you brought up the banjo because the banjo almost um, has a parallel history to this rhythm insofar as they were both in in their initial. Um, appearance and emergence popularization they were both very very clearly products of african-american culture um you know some people call the banjo america's african instrument you know it had african predecessors and then was widely reinvented um in the new world including here in the united states and as as some people know um you know, it, it wasn't actually played by white Americans until the 1840s. Um, and that was minstrelsy that popularized it among whites. Um, and the way that that happened, of course, is that these were minstrel troops, white men uh, in blackface, um, pretending to present the music of the plantations. Um, so they, they had the classic plantation ensemble, which, you know, w- would have always been a black ensemble. But, uh, you know, we're talking about fiddle, banjo. Um, and then some percussion, uh, usually. But, you know, that kind of ensemble is is just totally crucial to, to so much American music. That was the primary kind of musical labor in this country from, you know, probably the 18th century onward. I mean, the Black Fiddler stretching back even to the 1690s, you know, and uh, and, you know. 
so for many people, for a long time, the banjo was a symbol of, uh, of blackness. Um, and even into the 1920s, you know, uh, Duke Ellington still featuring banjos in, in his orchestra. You know, James Reese Europe in the teens had tons of banjos in his orchestra. Even though it had been sort of tainted in ways by minstrelsy, it was still um, a useful instrument and an instrument that, that a lot of African-Americans still played. Um, but as we know now, you know, you see a banjo, you hear a banjo, and the first thought is of a, you know, a white hillbilly um, from Appalachia. And, um, you know, that's, that's a similar product, um, uh, in my understanding, as the way that when we now hear this rhythm, this American clave rhythm being played on a banjo or on a guitar, um, we, uh, some of us anyway, let's say, we have a tendency to hear that as a white thing, as the sort of, you know, um, white country heritage coming from those white Appalachians. Um, and uh, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So yeah, how does that happen? Again, that happens because these string bands were the primary um, you know, musical labor in this country for both black dances and for white dances. And that, that goes all the way up into the the 1930s at least that these string bands were still playing hoedowns and you know breakdowns and um you know all kinds of country dance music square dance music um you know square dance calling itself is an african-american invention um i won't go into that right now but it's another example of something that has been kind of whitened in the popular imagination uh over the years um but so these bands were the ones that were the purveyors, not just of, um, you know, uh, classic, um, what would you call it? You know, string band music, a lot of it based on um, old Irish and, and, and Scottish and English tunes, but also increasingly, you could say, Americanized by way of being kind of Africanized. And, and I've read some scholars of those traditions who estimate that up to a third of sort of what are now thought of as, you know, sort of classic old time fiddle tunes um, were, uh, seem to have been African-American inventions that they don't even have predecessors, you know, from, from the British Isles, you know, at least directly. Um, so those bands, though, also played ragtime. Um, and, you know, ragtime was initially uh, really a folk style. It, it was it was a music played in the jukes. It was played by string bands, you know, much more frequently than by pianos. You need, you know, that's a slightly different sort of class milieu where you have a piano in the honky-tonk or, uh, or in the house. Um, and those string bands continued to be big purveyors of ragtime and other dance musics into the 20th century. Um, so what happens as far as how this rhythm then becomes a, a country trope and one that we more readily associate with white bands and white musicians um, is, uh, is that in the 1920s, uh, I'm sure as, as lots of your listeners know, the recording industry or a few record labels um, essentially drew a, a, a big stark color line uh, in terms of what they were recording from, from which artists and how they were marketing it. So, yeah. So at that point, even though, you know, black bands had been playing lots of country dances and playing all kinds of hoedowns and other other fiddle tunes and things, um, those bands were rarely invited to record that kind of music for for these record labels and for their what they were either calling old time, their old time catalog or their sometimes they called it hillbilly as well. Um Instead, those bands were only invited to record their blues numbers. Um, uh, 
because the record labels assumed uh, that black record buyers, who they discovered existed in 1920 with Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, uh, only wanted to buy blues records. And they also thought, you know, on the other hand, that uh, white record buyers didn't want to buy uh, old time music played by black musicians, which is really strange. I mean, I know this is Jim Crow, but it's also true that, you know, white listeners across the South um, had long uh, enjoyed uh, having black musicians play for their dances and and sing these songs and so forth. So, um, But isn't that sort of like how this sort of like cross-pollination like occurred with this rhythm? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess the way I hear it is that a lot of these country, you know, these, these, well, are they country? A lot of these string bands that were playing what we might hear more as a folk ragtime style. Um, you know, they, that rhythm was, was commonplace, um, you know, it, either because, you know, they were quoting Maple Leaf Rag or just because it became a, uh, um, you know, a popular trope in that kind of music. It, it caught on as a syncopated figure that lots of uh, musicians would throw into their tune, often not as a, not as a persistent beat, but as a kind of turnaround figure. Um, and, uh, so we're talking about bands that were based around, you know, like mandolin, fiddle, uh, uh, banjo, sometimes guitar. I mean, essentially what then ended up being reinvented as the bluegrass band in the 1940s. But, um, you know, the bands that did end up recording some of that stuff in the twenties, um, well, actually in the twenties, a lot of them still are, are, are black bands. They're recording ragtime numbers though. So, uh, even though it still might have a country tinge cause it's being played on a, a mandolin or banjo, um, uh, they're still at least recording it. So we have it there as evidence. Um, but this is also true for some of what were, what were being billed at that time as country blues guitarists, um, like Blind Blake or like Mississippi John Hurt. Um, and those guys were often billed as blues musicians, again, for the pernicious kind of marketing reasons we discussed already, even though they played a much wider repertory. And both of those guys, for example, um, played a lot of ragtime um, uh, and used a lot of ragtime figures in their music. Um, so, uh, you know, I, that's that's the way that I sort of hear that that's starting to cross there is the, the influence of those bands um, adding those ragtime you know, licks, but also the fact that ragtime songs, because ragtime was such a huge genre and and really wasn't limited to the piano, um, were a big part of what was kind of slowly coalescing as the country repertory, um, that that songs like Victory Rag or Cannonball Rag uh, were real staples, especially for guitarists. Now we go on old southern rag. We out there in all that cotton fields. We them people plant all their rice with sugar cane. And cheese and so forth grew. This is also the moment when it kind of takes on, this rhythm begins to take on these two very different meanings, right? That in one, as it enters country music, it, it becomes this kind of carrier signifier of, of traditionalism almost and in um you know kind of in the words of david gilbert uh in ragtime it's really a signifier of modernity of like urban in some ways cross-racial or racializing modernity yes yeah and i mean i do think it's the kind of it's the economic 
choice by the record labels i you know or it's the you know it's that kind of cultural and economic apartheid that they're drawing there in the 20s that really contributes to this this forking in the road for this rhythm you know because prior to that point i i mean it would have been i think largely heard as as a ragtime figure and therefore as a as as an african-american thing um but it was also widely accepted and adopted and embraced by by uh white americans too because you know ragtime was hot ragtime was pop um uh, and it was pop whether you were playing it uh on a on a piano or or with a brass band or if you were playing it with some some old string instruments so yeah i mean one thing that happens there is that you know a lot of those folks continue to play ragtime you know on both sides of the color line uh, on the the black side of the color line it it starts to be called jazz instead right but there are plenty of musicians from new orleans who contest that anyway and say no man i always played ragtime you know the, the white people started calling it jazz um and there on that side of the the line it remains um you know, as as Dave Gilbert uh, talks about in his book on on ragtime and James Reese Europe, that figure really remains tied to ideas about modernity, about it being a, a, a modern, hot, you know, pop style, not some old timey throwback. Um, and that's what race records were, right? They were up to date. They were blues. They were jazz. They they weren't old fashioned throwbacks. Um, whereas, you know, the other side of the coin there, the the old time line, the hillbilly line they were supposed to be kind of catering to a certain kind of nostalgia. I mean, they're called old time, right? And yet <laughs> you know, the music on both sides of that line often had this rhythm in common. Um, you know, uh, songs like Cannonball Rag, Victory Rag became a staple for the, the country picking guitarists. Um, and a lot of those guitarists also, you know, apprenticed with their black peers in, in their communities, whether we're talking about Muhlenberg, Kentucky, or we're talking about, you know, further down south. Um, and it's just that a lot of the you know, evidence of, uh, of black musicians playing old timey music with that rhythm in it just it was never recorded. Um, you know, and again, so as country music kind of continues to develop and centralize around Nashville and, um, Really, I mean, my sense is that there's a kind of a pause in the 30s, um, maybe not on radio, but on record. Uh, and then in the wake of this, you know, that, that there's really, it becomes a, a big business again in, in the 50s, um, where this rhythm's still kicking around. Yes, yes, it's it's still kicking around. Um, and I mean, the one place you do hear it kind of on the countryside in the 1930s is in Western Swing, you know, Bob Wills and, and his Texas Playboys. Um, but of course, there, it's once again, it's coming arguably uh, as much from the, the ragtime and jazz side, the swing side of things, as, as from the country side of things. But actually, you know, interestingly enough, it may have suited Bob Wills very well that he could um evoke both you know kind of old-timey countryness with that figure as well as you know up-to-date swing um but yeah uh eventually in the 50s you you know you 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 hear it starting to appear in what we would hear more as kind of modern country modern country and western music though i do want to note that it also um is quite prominent in you know the the sort of seminal bluegrass recordings of the 1940s you know so uh, well, 50s too, I guess. Yeah, but you know, um, you know, Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, and then I've, you know, later Flatt and Scruggs and those kinds of folks. Um, 
so, you know, that all, I think, helps to continue to sort of affirm this figure and just keep it in people's ears. And, and also, depending on who you are and where you are and what you're listening, you know, to, it, it's going to, it, it starts to accrue, you know, some of these different cultural meanings, some of these different associ- racial associations. Um, and so by the time we get to the 1950s, um, it it might sound like it's coming straight out of country, or it might sound like it's really hip and up to date, depending on whether you're Elvis Presley or you're Ray Charles. Um, and that's another example that really came out of my my teaching this class at at Berkeley, where I'd always do a, a unit on 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 rock uh, rock and roll in the 1950s. And uh, you know, when that rhythm started to jump out of the horn line in in Ray Charles's song, or when it starts to jump out of Scotty Moore's licks in in Elvis Presley's early recordings for Sun. Um, you know, my, my mind just kind of went again, you know, because it's like, whoa, okay, here we are, that same rhythm, which seems to go back to ragtime, now appearing on kind of, you know, both, you know, rock and roll artists, but what I think a lot of people would have heard as, you know, different sides uh, of the color line there. People are hearing Ray Charles is doing this kind of up-to-date take on on jazz and and, and swing um, with with his recordings in the mid '50s there, and um, you know in terms of Elvis, yeah, they're hearing him draw on black and white musical traditions, you know. But tellingly, as far as certainly the way it gets written up, you know, later, uh, yeah, he's using blues forms, but it's the instrumentation and it's the the kinds of licks that they're playing that seem to represent. Um, you know, Elvis bringing the kind of white side to the table as well. So by the 1950s, something really interesting and kind of weird has happened to this figure where it can now have this kind of dual life um, in the world of American popular music. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. Say, I got a woman way over town. just to follow up on the kind of i mean we just did an entire uh episode about kind of white black musical crossover and the complexities of that and in fact you know billboard's brief late 50s early 60s abolition of separate charts for for you know like quote-unquote race records and and the mainstream pop charts and then it's recreation later in the 60s so like the complexities of, of those traditions um especially in this period of time, are, are super, uh, super evident. But just following up on the kind of rock and roll and country side of that story, my sense is that then the rhythm gets used again in the mid, almost a decade later, in the mid-60s, when mostly white artists are trying to evoke explicitly this kind of like 
down-home, folky authenticity. Call it the Nashville skyline move. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and my, my favorite, I think the classic example of that would be the Beatles' What Goes On, um, where, you know, the, a Scotty Moore-style look basically sort of comes in a few times during that song, and it's very clearly like, you know, the Beatles there are nodding, nodding to that sound and, and to that style. Um, and that continues, you know, uh, as a way of nodding to a kind of down-home Americana um, and everything from, you know, rock bands who were maybe on the more sort of countryside, like the Flying Burrito Brothers, um, but also it shows up in some Creedence Clearwater revival. Um, it shows up, interestingly enough, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too much here, but it, in, I found it um, in a couple songs by uh, George Michael, um, but you find him using it in both ways, which I find really interesting and telling, too. You know, sometimes it's very clearly a nod, once again, to this country style, and sometimes it's really clearly a nod to, you know, for want of a better word, jazz, you know, uh, or, or black music more generally. So in just following up on that George Michael, because I mean, there I, I read him and you're talking about uh, it's like faith, right? Um, yes. Faith and I want your sex. So I mean, I read it and it's interesting. Um, and, and this is where I think a, a really big difference between the uses of the utility of this rhythm, right? Is it is my sense is that um, within the kind of country branch of this rhythm, it begins, the, 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 it's tied to authenticity is both a blessing and a curse maybe, that it's super useful, but it also starts to sound kind of old timey almost. So I, I almost think of it as being used the same way that sometimes people will use like a, like a six, eight, like, um, like a six, eight uh, pain in my heart kind of rhythm to like evoke like a certain kind of R&B sensibility that it, it, it's got a very defined feel when it appears. Oh, sure. I mean, it becomes an absolute convention, almost maybe a cliche, but but I hear what you're saying too. It, it becomes a, a trope, you know, something that, that allows you to signal country music um, very, very quickly and easily. Um, and uh, maybe in the same way that, that, that the banjo does itself. Um, and uh, Saxon and I were talking about how the banjo has a kind of parallel history here to this rhythm as far as something that started out being played um, exclusively by African-Americans, um, but that over the course of, of this long history has become more prominently associated with, you know, sort of uh, white hillbilly music, to use a, an outdated term for it. One last question on this line. I mean, does it get... My sense is it, it's kind of fallen out of favor as a signifier in post-70s country. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's not, it's it's certainly not as prominent as it used to be. And and I mean, I, I, I do have some examples in, in the mega mix that uh, are from the 80s and 90s and, and even more recently. Um, let's see, the most recent example I think is... Um, there's a Chris Stapleton song from 2015 where it's played a lot more subtly. It's just, it's on the guitar, it's kind of in the background, but it's there and it's kind of underpinning. And in fact, given how much modern country often lacks those kinds, you know, those, those kind of tropes, conventions, cliches, um, this is a useful way, I think, even when done more subtly to, you know, uh, to, to conjure that up, uh, to evoke, that old country style. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I agree. It has it has kind of receded uh, in in certain ways from from being uh, a more common figure. And, and that's very different than if you kind of rewind the tape um, to its continued. And 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 to me, this is one uh, in an article full of revelations. Like one of the biggest revelations for me was you're tracing it through kind of the black musical traditions that uh, from soul, you know, the, the direct lineage from ragtime to jazz into soul and then into disco. And then from disco, you know, the many tendrils of electronic music. Yeah. And I mean, let me just add, you know, I mean, cause yeah, you, you hit the outline there, but yeah, we're saying ragtime, jazz, swing, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul, uh, and then, of course, you know, um, disco and from the 80s onward, you get it in house, you get it in techno, you get it in hip hop. Um, and it's it's just never gone away. Yeah. And then and then the kind of final um, move that you make in the article and then and one that's really well represented in, in the mega mix is not just the move into hip hop, which makes sense. Right. Like a. Uh, the the rap sampling of disco is is um, well known and a wonderful thing that occurs in American culture, uh, <laughs> but um, the move into what you call uh, like party chants, um, especially it seems like mo- mostly but certainly not exclusively coming from Southern hip hop. Yeah, yeah, no. So that that's one. That's another. So as I've been tracing this rhythm for the last like four or five years and just making my list and checking it twice. Uh, that was another one that just jumped out to me one day and I was like, oh God, there it is again. You know, it's when, you know, when people go, oh, 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 oh. I'm just like, my God, I've heard that a million times. You know, how did it... How did it get there? How did it not jump out at me uh, earlier? Um, and in fact, that was one where it just started haunting me. You know, this often happens when I get a pattern in my head and and, and then other patterns start to kind of <laughs> align with it. But I couldn't even remember what that song was. I mean, in fact, one place that I heard it just kind of by happenstance is I was listening to this um, really great, actually, Grandmaster Flash mixtape um called sol soul jam 2000 um so this is him just playing <laughs> yes oh man it's, it's from 2000 and it's all records from the sol soul label which is you know I, I i think probably my favorite disco era label uh you know salsa plus soul so it's got that nice percussion it's got the soul stuff and anyway some real classics on there so for whatever reason, in 2000, they made a push um, to revive this music and they got Flash to do um, like an hour long mix of it. And <laughs> it's not just a, just him doing a mix, though. Uh, and I don't know exactly how this was made, but there's what we might call a party in the back kind of atmosphere, right? That you're hearing the records Flash is playing, but you're also hearing these people dancing i guess or like making the sounds that you would hear while dancing you know they're they're whooping and hollering and encouraging each other and uh and at times they break into this little chant oh 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 um which is interesting because uh i mean that that shows that it had been around for a while now 
this is another mystery. I don't know how long. I don't even know who to ask. You know, when's the first time you heard this chant at a party? You know, uh, nobody, as far as I know, has written about this or has paid attention, unfortunately, to, you know, say like, you know, black party practice over the the course of the late 20th century and, you know, tried to, tried to, you know, take account of that and, and understand what's going on there and um, document it. But, um, but it's very familiar. And, uh, you know, in fact, it was so familiar. I was like, where else is this from? I know I've heard this somewhere else. And you can't like sing that at Shazam <laughs> uh, and Shazam find it. <laughs> so anyway, what I did was even more humiliating. I, I, I recorded myself singing it and uh, like a little video of myself just singing that line. Oh, 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 oh. And said, you know, like, where, where is this from? And I put it on Twitter. <laughs> and... <laughs> And actually, you know, within within a matter of minutes, you know, I, I had somebody saying, oh, yeah, that's that's where the party at, you know, by Jagged Edge featuring Nelly. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, right. OK. I mean, that is one place where it occurs. Now, of course, that's from 2001. Right. Which, you know, shows you that when those guys are doing it in the party in the back in Grandmaster Flash's Soul Soul Jam 2000, it's not coming from that Jagged Edge song. It's 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 drawing on the same um I don't know. Let's. I don't know how long-standing, but I think probably at that point, fairly long-standing practice of singing this at parties that that Nelly and and company are drawing on too. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's kind of another amazing thing that that jumped out of this um, and and shows that it's a real living figure, you know, and that it's 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 a living figure in in black culture um and uh if we can't you know. if we can't like answer the like how did it get into this music or like the why i think the one takeaway um particularly from this time period that we're talking about that by this point it had become very ingrained in sort of the american music like fabric and was and it had a, a sort of malleability that it was able to like cross genres and yeah, period and so. areas yeah yeah. yeah, and I think that also explains why it rolls off the tongues of various rappers, you know, who, I, you know, I think for the most part, rappers aren't too kind of formalistic about like, oh, now I'm going to put this accent here. Now I'm going to put this accent here. You know, when you're writing rhymes, you know, you, yeah, you're developing rhythmic motifs and things and you're, you're drawing on, on all kinds of, you know, things that you may have heard before. Um, but I think the fact that this this thing was still in the air, and not just in terms of like drum programming or a guitar, but actually as a vocal melody, um, maybe as part of what um, you know uh, made it more available to the likes of uh, you know Fifty Cent or Kendrick Lamar or Cardi B or various others who've used it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things it, it makes me the, the the big questions that that come out of this for me, right, is that like I'm so convinced by the longevity and, and like Saxon said, like how deeply this is woven into American musical culture. Um, and, and, it, and it leads me to this, you know, this complicated question, which is that, you know, America is a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a post-culture industry culture, right? So it's party chance that people are maybe transmitting both on record, but also, you know, in, in environments that are more, you know, like uh, like folkloric pathways, you know, people living their lives and doing things, but it's also being transmitted via these commodities that you can buy and hear. So, you know, the Beatles are learning it from an Elvis record in a to you know in, in Liverpool in a totally different social and cultural setting. And so, for me, some of the question is like, what what kind of meanings can adhere to a rhythm? 
in this kind of what, what you point to in the in the articles, like this the 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 you know the ever changing same of the of the American mu- musical practices. Yeah, and I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that it seems to emerge as a commodity in the first place. You know, so there's really no divorcing it from from the marketing uh, of the American music industry either. Um, even though, you know, I think it's it's probably as likely a, a, as not that that again, Ernest Hogan kind of you know lifted this out of the air, out of cultural practice, out of things that people were were already doing. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 commerce, um, the, the commodification of this stuff is is part of what has helped it to spread, um, and in fact, what has helped it to um, get into new kinds of contexts and become decontextualized again, for better or for worse, um, and eventually heard in very different ways in in, in different contexts. Cool. I mean, I think that's probably a, a pretty good place to to wrap things up. Saxon, do you have any other? I guess real quickly, that, we, that's when you... great. When you talk to oh, musicians, they're, they're just like they're they're just like oh yeah that thing. They're like not really like they recognize it at least, but they they don't really they haven't put much thought into it. Is that kind of the, the general response? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, <laughs> they'll say oh yeah okay yeah no I hear what you're saying. I guess I've you know I've never really thought about it that way, uh, or thought about it you know as as a thing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's it's something you know I. You know, this 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 research for this article was mainly archival. I would say, you know, the, the archives of recorded music, and then you know all all the all the the studies of the industry over the last hundred years. But I do think there's there's a lot more that can be done. You know, again, from a more ethnographic standpoint, and just trying to figure out how how consciously um, uh, musicians are bringing this into their playing. Um, and, and I'd be really curious to, to then to know, you know, how that compares between, you know, a country guitarist and a, and a disco guitarist. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe one thing that, that will emerge, this is always what people hope of their work is that future research will, will build on it in some ways. Um, but yeah. And, and of course I'm also just uh, grateful for, for your invitation to join your podcast because I, um, uh, you know, a, a little signal boost, uh, um, you know, a month after or a couple months after it was out, uh, will will help to to give it some legs and hopefully help help it to find um, some other people to to lend their ears and and uh, maybe um, maybe their thoughts too. Well, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Yeah. Hey. Well, a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again. You've been listening to Money for Nothing, a podcast about music and capitalism. Please rate and review us. Music by Bird Language, and we'll see you two weeks time. This is how we do. We make a move and act the fool while we up in the club. This is how we do. Nobody do it like we do it, so show us some love. This is how we do. We make a move and act the fool while we up in the club.